Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Hello, everyone. Um, so this morning's message didn't get recorded, which is okay because I get to take a second stab at it uh, today from my home office and uh Hopefully, uh, it'll actually be a treat because I'll have a little bit more of an idea of what I'm saying. So uh, this is uh, this is just another fun experiment for me. So um, welcome uh, to all of you who are tuning into our podcast today. We started a new series called Eureka. So our yearly vision for this year is from the throne flows a river of renewal. And one of the things I talked about at the beginning of this month was how exciting it is to have kind of a poetic vision from the Lord because it doesn't necessarily give us clarity on where we might go. Um, but the, the real uh, beauty of it becomes uh, as we follow God week to week and month to month, season to season, we really begin to put together the pieces of what it is that he is speaking over us. Uh, and so typically every, um, you know, at the beginning of each year, we like to use one of the Gospels to recenter us on the story of Jesus, and that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the year. Um, and uh, at the latter part of last year, as I was kind of praying into where we might be headed this year and, and what the Lord might have us focus in on, I really felt like rather than focusing in on one of the Gospels, we might actually go through the Old Testament looking for Jesus. Um, because I think that one of the things that is so problematic for many of us today, and I hear this from a lot of you as we sit together and, and talk about your journey with Jesus, is how difficult the Old Testament can be. And I think in the spirit of renewal, it's important that we renew our approach to the Old Testament if we really want to know King Jesus fully. And so what I want to do today, just to kind of set the tone for the series, is look at some of the words that we use when we talk about Scripture. I want to talk about revelation. I want to talk about inspiration, that idea of being divinely inspired or God-breathed. And I want to talk about uh, these two terms that often are uh, kind of pitted at odds with one another, inerrant and infallible. And today I'm going to be using several passages from the New Testament where the writers themselves are referencing um, Old Testament uh, scriptures and visions uh, in order to really hit home this idea that Jesus is the full revelation of who God really is. So I'm going to begin um, with the first chapter of Hebrews, and then we're going to jump right into this and see what the Lord has for us. Um, so Heavenly Father, uh, we testify the truth that you are here, wherever here might be for us today as we're listening to this podcast. Maybe we're driving to work or we're, uh, we're sitting at home or we're out on a run, whatever it is, Lord, um, may we just pause for a moment and, and re remind ourselves that you are here. You're always here. Um, and sometimes it just takes us a moment uh, to realize that, to settle into that truth. And God, I pray as, uh, as we continue today, but even through this series, um, that you would be doing something in each one of us, that you would be loosening uh, some of our fears and apprehensions that we might have when it comes to delving into the Old Testament because we're not sure of what we're going to find there, but that instead we would latch on to deeper, more powerful visions of who you are, especially as you revealed yourself to us through your son, Jesus. So may the words of my lips 
and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So this is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 1. And I'm using the New English translation of Scripture, which I've really come to love because it's just so full of these notes from the translators about why they translated things in certain ways and phrases. And I always think it's so helpful, especially when we're looking at familiar pieces of Scripture, to compare to different translations and see how we're approaching these things. Because when we're talking about Scripture, what we're really talking about is translations into English from Hebrew, from Greek, etc., um, and it's so important that we're relying on the experts uh, to really help us to understand the spirit of the message. This is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. After God spoke long ago, in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets, in these last days he has spoken to us in a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he created the world. The sun is the radiance of his glory and the representation of his essence. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. And so when he had accomplished cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thus he became so far better than the angels as he has inherited a name superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have fathered you. And in another place he says, I will be his father and he will be my son. But when he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And he says of the angels, he makes his angels winds and his ministers the flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And a righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. So God, your God, has anointed you over your companions with the oil of rejoicing. And you founded the earth in the beginning, Lord, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you continue. And they all will grow old like a garment, and like a robe you will fold them up, and like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never run out. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So let's begin talking about this idea of revelation, the revealing of who God is through Scripture. I believe that the Old Testament, as the partial revelation of God, is like a collection of signposts pointing through the mist to Jesus as the full revelation of God. I think we're in a very tragic moment in um, the Christian story right now where many Christians feel adrift from the Old Testament. It feels confusing or it doesn't feel particularly helpful or useful or even seem relevant. And I think a lot of times... Even in our apprehension in approaching the Old Testament, it reveals to us that we've been conditioned uh, to believe things of Scripture that maybe sell it rather short. Um, I think even one of those especially is this idea that Scripture is just meant to be useful, that it's, that it's supposed to be practical. And 
it seems like so little of the Old Testament is actually practical. In fact, some of those stories seem very confusing in the images that they paint of God or how God's people behave. And when we come to the New Testament, it does seem to be a little bit more practical in how to live a better life or how to be a good person or whatever that might be. But unfortunately, many of us have those preconceived notions uh, because we've been conditioned to ask the wrong questions of uh, the Bible in general. But the reality is that we can't unhitch from the Old Testament because if we do, we'll never understand what it is that the writers of the New Testament are actually trying to say. So for example, within the New Testament alone, there are 283 direct quotations from the Old. There are over 2,300 allusions. That means a reference to a story or an image or whatever it might be. There are over 500 references to the Old Testament just in Revelation alone through verses and imagery. And if we don't know those stories, then it it dramatically changes the way that we're trying to engage with what the writers of the New Testament were doing. Because the reality is that they were all drenched in the Old Testament. One of the most revolutionary things that we can realize is Jesus was a Jew, and most of his early followers were the same. So whether it's the, the, the actions and the words of Jesus, the writers of the Gospels themselves, Paul, James, all these others, they are Jewish, and so they were drenched in what they had as the scriptures at the time, what we call the Old Testament, or we might call the Hebrew Bible. And that shaped everything for them. It shaped their expectations of who God was and what it is that God was now doing in the world through Jesus. Even in this passage that we just read from Hebrews, we see this, uh, this language. I love that the New, England, New English translation says, he has given unto us in various portions that God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors. And I think what the writer is saying here is what it is that God has sketched through the ancients. He is now fully imprinted in Jesus. So we can understand then that the Old Testament is the partial revelation of God. That um, as the story progresses, humanity is gaining a deeper and deeper understanding of what God's heart is truly like, but it's always incomplete until we fully receive Jesus as the exact representation of God's character, or as the New English translation says, his essence. So for us as Christians, we say, if you want to know what Jesus or God is really like, we look at Jesus. He is the best thing that God has ever had to say and will ever have to say. But that doesn't mean that we diminish the necessity of those Old Testament scriptures, the stories, the poems, the encouragements, the histories, all these things, because they all exist there to help us to understand who Jesus was in his fullness. And I think that that reveals to us the problem that we have in the modern era when we have divorced ourselves from the Old Testament scriptures. There's a kind of recent phenomenon of trying to uh, rationalize who Jesus is. And oftentimes what happens is we've reduced him to just being a moral teacher um, or just a good example to follow, that he was a great man, he was a great teacher, but he wasn't actually divine. That in fact, the writers of the New Testament just tried to make up these stories around Jesus to kind of push their agenda, 
um, or to deal with uh, the failings of his ministry because he was cut down too early or whatever it might be. Um, for some of us, we grew up in um, a Christian tradition, perhaps, that the, the only point of the whole story is to teach us how to go to heaven when we die, um, a sort of Gnostic dualism. And that's a really good example of giving us the wrong questions to ask and the wrong expectations. So we only look for the scriptures that seem to answer those questions. And I think that it, it's tragic because it limits the way that we understand um, who Jesus is and what God was doing through him in his life, death, and resurrection. And this is what happens when we don't take scripture seriously, that we try to make excuses for the Jesus that we find. Um, in fact, one of the more interesting stories of note here um, is that Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, uh, one of our earliest presidents, um, he really latched on to the moral teachings of Jesus, but like many of us, he was uncomfortable with the stories of the miracles or where Jesus proclaims to be uh, God incarnate. And so what Thomas Jefferson did is he combed through the Gospels and he picked out all the bits that he liked. And he literally, you can go to the National Archives and see it, he cut and paste into kind of a super gospel that he thought like this now after the Enlightenment and we know better, this is really going to be the scripture that's going to carry us forward. And I think the spirit of what Thomas Jefferson did, unfortunately, is still very prevalent in the church today, that we pick and choose the scriptures that answer the questions that it was never meant to answer. And it really sells us short on the power and the dynamism of the story that the writers are trying to tell us. But we see this all throughout the New Testament itself, um, that they are seeing the story of Jesus as a continuation of the story of God. But they're saying that it has been fulfilled in who Jesus truly is. And it's not just in the scriptures, but it's, it's the, the symbols and the images that scripture testifies to. So for example, in Colossians chapter 2, um, Paul says this, he says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you with respect to food or drink or in the manner of a feast, new moon or Sabbath days, these are only the shadow of the things to come, but the reality is Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is whatever you read in the law about your behavior and your conduct, whatever you're participating in when it comes to a festival or a Sabbath day, or even as the writer in Hebrews talks about, like even the, the temple itself, all of these were just symbols. They're just icons of the really real thing which is the story of what God is doing in creation through Jesus. And so for the, the writers of the New Testament, they believe what they're seeing unfold through the way of Jesus isn't God's plan B to the failed plan A that was the Old Testament, but actually a fulfillment of the whole story. And we need the whole story to be able to receive the revelation that we find in Jesus as the fullness of who God is. So the second thing that I want to talk about is uh, this idea of divine inspiration or um, scripture being God-breathed. Another helpful way that I've found to, to frame all of scripture, really, but especially the Old Testament, is that the whole Bible is the story of humanity encountering the ineffable God and trying to put into words what they just experienced. A lot of times what happens when we speak of divine inspiration is that we have this mental picture that God possessed the writers of the scriptures 
and kind of took them by the hand and, and made them write down word for word exactly what he was saying. Or um, that God came into the room and he just began to dictate and they're just furiously scribbling down what it is that he's saying. And this is a very unfortunate uh, literalist reading of what we mean by divinely inspired. I think what that phrase means is actually far more beautiful um, and revelatory than what many of us have been led to believe. And so that idea of divine inspiration breathed by God, so often people will point to this little passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. So Paul is writing uh, to one of his young pastors, encouraging him in his ministry. And this part especially is about the value of Scripture uh, to the early church. This is what he says. But you, on the other hand, must stand firm in the things you learned and believed. You know who it was you received them from and how from childhood you have known the holy writings which have the power to make you wise for salvation through faith in King Jesus. All scripture is breathed by God and it is useful for teaching, for rebuke, for improvement, for training in righteousness so that people who belong to God may be complete, fitted out and ready for every good work. And I love that this is coming from Paul because I I can't imagine a scenario where Paul is writing this letter to Timothy and he's considering the letter he's writing is going to be part of what we now know as the Bible. So it becomes tricky when we read this, all scripture is breathed by God, and then we're assuming that the writer is applying it to the very thing that he's writing and then the other scriptures that people are going to be writing for the next 20 or 30 years. But I think what we really see Paul doing here is he's saying that scripture being breathed by God means what we've always known throughout the, the Old Testament of what it, of God breathing means that it gives life. So it kind of goes back to that early story in Genesis chapter 2 where God creates humanity. He, he gathers up the dust of the earth and he forms it and then he breathes into it and his breath becomes life. But the Hebrew word for breath Ruach is the same word for spirit. So it, it, get, it puts spirit into something that is lifeless and gives it life, gives it purpose. And so when we bring that back into the letter of 2 Timothy, that's what Paul is actually saying, is that when you understand what the scriptures are here to do to make us wise for salvation through faith in King Jesus in these holy writings, it is God breathing life into you. You know, we use this English word inspiration, but it literally means to put the spirit into someone. And I like to think of it more like this, that when you encounter, you know, when you fall in love or when you encounter a transcendent moment in life and you feel compelled somehow to to write a poem or to write a song, something that can capture in some way um, how you have been brought to life by this revelation. I think that's a much healthier and more honest way of understanding inspiration than it just being about uh, God dictating to some people in a small room exactly what he meant to say. And that brings us uh, to the third of these very tricky words that we use when we talk about scripture. What do we mean when we say inerrant? And what do we mean when we say infallible? So often in the Gospels, we see Jesus um, debating Scripture with the experts of the day, usually the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so often what happens 
is these two religious groups are coming to Jesus with a, with a, a challenge or a question from Scripture, and they're trying to say whose interpretation of the Bible is correct. And they want Jesus to settle the score between them because there was a lot of points where they didn't see eye to eye on what the scripture was trying to say. And there's this amazing passage in John 5 where Jesus is really challenging the religious elite of the day that it's not just about what the scriptures mean, but it's the way in which they're holding them that is the problem. And so he says this, this is John 5, 39, 40. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them, you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now imagine this very bold claim that Jesus is making here, which I think is just, it kind of fits in with what we were talking about in Revelation. Um, When Jesus says, you refuse to meet, you you refuse to come to me to have life. This isn't the claim of a good moral teacher. This isn't the claim of somebody who's saying, hey, I've just come to to show you how to be a better person. This is the claim of someone who believes that they are God incarnate. And these are the kind of passages that so often in modern society, we really struggle to know what to do with because it seems outside of our categories, even of what religion is supposed to be about, that it's about being moral or it's about being good. And so that right there should shake us. But when we understand that, then we see that The Pharisees and the Sadducees in Jesus's day were having the same problem. So what's happened in the kind of history of the church, when we go back to the Reformation about 400 years ago, and this is Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others, is that they very rightly recognized that scripture had been diminished in its place in the church, the Catholic church at the time, that it had become about tradition, it had become about um, symbol and sacrament, it had become about the priesthood. Um, but so much of their religiosity had been about doing the thing for the thing's sake and not what the thing is meant to point us to. So the early reformers developed this idea, uh, sola scriptura, which maybe you're familiar with, means, means in scripture alone. And their premise was this, that scripture alone contains all that's necessary for us to find salvation in Jesus, which was a very powerful Uh, counteraction. I find this even today um, in a lot of my friends who grew up uh, Catholic or maybe in other liturgical traditions that they, their awareness of what scripture is there to do or even what scripture is, um, is very lacking. And that's not everybody. That's not, of course, by no means is that all Catholics. There's some Catholics that are amazing when it comes to scripture, but that so often tends to be what happens. But unfortunately, what happens Um, in history is that we do see what so often we do, which is an overcorrection in the Reformation. And so in the Protestant household, because we elevated scripture so much, it actually became to us another God. And so instead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And um, I was joking earlier this morning that I think I say the word fetish Uh, far more often than most pastors do, but I think it's a very useful category to understand what I mean here, that in psychology, a fetish is when we take an object and imbue it with magical powers that can save us. And that's what's happened for so many Christians when we think of sola scriptura, that by scripture alone we can be saved, that we actually take on the same attitude that we find in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that they think it's about 
um, knowing the scriptures inside and out, and it's about finding the right answers, and somehow that's where they're going to find salvation. So for many of you who grew up Protestant, perhaps this is what it was. It was down to like sword drills in Sunday school and memorization and some things that are very good, but that was the be-all, end-all of the conversation. If I can just interpret these scriptures correctly, then somehow I'm going to be saved. And we should, we should be the ones who are challenged and kind of disturbed by Jesus's claim. When he says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. That that's the purpose of scripture, to lead us into living relationship with Jesus. And so I think that frames the the problem we have with these two words, inerrant and infallible. And they've been um, kind of defined in various ways. And so it's important that you understand, even within your own church tradition, um, how that word is framed. But generally speaking, this is what we have. The word inerrant means without any errors. So it means that the text proves itself, that there are no contradictions, there are no errors. The text is perfect and it's adequate description of reality. And this was this is actually a very recent phenomenon in uh, Christian theology, this idea of inerrancy. A lot of uh, traditions that might claim that the Bible is inerrant um, are actually very recent um, decisions that have been made by those in charge. And it's a result of the Enlightenment era when the scientific method uh, came about and the general sentiment was we can know all things of truth through um, through discovery, through measurement, through observation. That's what makes something true. And what happened for a lot of people in the Protestant household is we said, ah, yes, exactly. And that's what our Bible does because our Bible proclaims the truth. And so we reduced the Bible to being a history book or being a science book and uh, making these claims about measurable scientific reality, trying to use the Bible. And so even the idea of young earth creationism, that the earth is only 6,000 years old, or that the, wor- the world was created in six 24-hour periods, or um, even I think there's some claims there for the, the flat earth conspiracy theorists. It's trying to make the Bible do something that it was never intended to do in a way to try to meet the conversation that was happening in culture at the time. And the problem that I have with inerrancy is that it makes the, t- the text try to prove itself. That's the be-all, end-all. Um, and the problem is that we try to make excuses for why there are seemingly contradictions in the Scripture and say, oh, well, they're not really contradictions. It's just this, this, and this. But in reality, there are contradictions in the Scriptures. Some of the stories are told in different ways that are incongruous on some of the details. Or another example would be where, you know, a significant portion of the the Torah, the first five uh, books of the Bible, um, a lot of it's about the idea of sacrifice, that God seems very interested in sacrifice and making sure that the Israelites are doing things just the way that he needs them to do it. But then we fast forward in the story to the story of David, for example, where David has this huge moral failure when he has Uriah killed to take his wife as his own, and then his friend, uh, the priest Nathan, comes and confronts him of his sin, and he writes Psalm 51, and there's this amazing line in there where he says, "Um, I would offer you sacrifices, but that is not what you desire. A broken and contrite heart, this is what you want. And you read Psalm 51, and you just think, David, are you not reading your Bible? 
like, it seems like God is very concerned with sacrifice. He goes on and on and on about it for chapters and chapters of the Torah. And you're coming to this conclusion that God doesn't delight in sacrifice. And even uh, later on, the prophet Hosea takes up the same thing. So there we see some incongruence in if we're just making it about there not being any errors in scripture. Not only that, but we see in the ministry of Jesus and in the writings of Paul, where they're reinterpreting well-assumed pieces of the Old Testament to make it about Jesus. For example, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus gets up uh, to read the scroll um, in the synagogue, and he reads from Isaiah about um, what it is that God is going to fulfill through his Messiah. And he very artfully skips over the line that says that there will be the day of vengeance upon the Gentiles, and he continues on. And he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your reading. And they riot. They try to throw him off a cliff because it's so insulting to them because their Bible tells them that God is going to exact revenge upon the Gentiles. And Jesus is saying, no, these scriptures have been fulfilled in me, and that's not what's going to happen. We see Paul doing the same thing time and again. In fact, Paul himself, when he was Saul before he met Jesus, he was going out persecuting, murdering Christians, people who were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, because his Bible told him that's what he was supposed to do. And this is the danger that we have in the whole attitude of inerrancy when we think that the Bible is there to prove itself, is that we can make it say anything we want and imagine that there are no contradictions. There is no evolution in our understanding of God and his heart or what it is, most importantly, that he's doing through Jesus. I see it all the time in the justification for violence, that we use Old Testament passages uh, to justify our positions, but then when we come to the New Testament, we have to try to explain away the radical call to peaceableness that Jesus offers us. So I think inerrancy in addition to being a very new phenomenon in the church, relatively speaking, the past 200 years or so, um, not only is it new and untested and not the, 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 the position of the historical church, but it also doesn't really serve Scripture well, and it doesn't seem to be listening to what Scripture itself is testifying about its role. And I think that that's why the word infallible is so much more fascinating, but I think it's an, a more faithful way of approaching Scripture. Because instead of inerrancy being about the text proving itself, the word infallible means cannot fail. And automatically the question becomes, well, cannot fail at what? And so now we start listening to the Scriptures to say, what is it that you're trying to tell us? Because now it's about the purpose, not the product. And when we believe the scriptures are infallible, we believe that the purpose of the text is to lead us into revelation of who Jesus is, because the purpose of the text is everything. And this takes us out of some of the very small questions that we have about the scripture, about, well, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons or, uh, you know, whatever it might be, even talked about the, the very tricky story of um, Elisha being made fun of by these little kids for calling him balding. So these bears come down out of the mountains and maul these youths. And you're like, what are you supposed to do with this scripture? But when we understand the purpose of the text is to point us to Jesus, it radically shifts how we approach it and how we hold it. And so with every passage of scripture, if we believe it's infallible, our primary question is, where is King Jesus in this? And specifically when it comes to the Old Testament, we're asking, how does this point forward in the story of God to Jesus being the fulfillment of everything that he promised us? And that doesn't make um, some of the difficulties go away. I think there are passages in the Old Testament 
that probably should make us feel angry or confused or scared, but it doesn't mean that we just throw them out. Um, but it also doesn't mean that we uphold them as the full uh, revelation of who God is, because the scriptures themselves say this was the partial revelation. These people did the best they could with what they had based on what they had experienced. But now in Jesus, we have the full revelation of God. And so every passage of scripture must submit to the image of God that we have in Christ. And so there are three basic ways um, for us to interpret Old Testament scriptures. The first many of us will be quite familiar with is prophecy. So through, um, through Advent especially, we were focusing on the prophecies of Isaiah about the coming Messiah. And we saw in all manner of ways how the first uh, receivers of the infant Jesus knew the prophecies. They knew what it was they were looking for and they were ready to receive him as the fulfillment of God's rescue plan for the world. And a prophecy is essentially a pronouncement of what God plans to do to redeem the whole world through Christ. So many of us are going to be familiar with that. The next two, I think, are um, something that so often is missing in the conversation for Protestants when it comes to our interpretation of scripture. And those are the things that we're going to be looking at in this series. So the first is Christophany. Um, Christophany is a, a revelation of Christ. So um, like a theophany is a revelation of God. This is specifically revelations of Jesus. And when we're looking at scripture, it's an appearance or non-physical manifestation of Christ, either prior to his birth or after his ascension. So as Christians, we don't believe that all of a sudden Jesus just showed up on the scene um, in 0 BC and he was here for 33 years and then he dipped out and that was all that we ever heard from him. But we actually believe that Christ was present from the very beginning. And if Christ is present from the beginning of scripture on, then we can read the Old Testament looking for evidence, not just of the prophecies of his coming, but his pre-incarnate presence in those stories. I like to think of the story of Jacob, for example, which is one that we're not going to get to in this series. But Jacob falls asleep and he has this vision of God on the throne and this ladder and angels ascending and descending. And he wakes up from this dream and he says, ah, oh, surely God was in this place this whole time and I was not aware. And I think that's the bold claim that we make on the Hebrew scriptures as Christians is that Christ was present the whole time, but we were the ones that weren't aware of it. But now that we know what Christ looks like, we know what to look for. And the third of these three ways of interpreting scripture, prophecy, Christophany, is called typology. And this is where God has placed anticipations of Christ in the laws, the events, and the people of the Old Testament. And so this is where we look at some of the main players in the Hebrew scriptures, and they become almost like these little icons of who Christ will be in his fullness. And again, this is something that we see the writers of the New Testament doing quite often, especially Paul. Paul tells the story of Abraham and he says, here's what Abraham did for us, but Jesus is like that, but even more. Here's what Adam was like, but Jesus redeemed that even more. Here's what Moses was like, and here's what Moses did, but Jesus is like that, but even more. And so uh, we're looking for types of Christ in the Old Testament to give us hints as it would have for the first readers and especially um, the Jewish people in the first century to know when you see the signs of someone walking this out in its fullness, what it was hinted at through the characters of the Old Testament, that's when you know you found the Christ. So what are we trying to accomplish in this series? 
I've, I've been so captured by this line from the Catholic theologian Karl Rahner. He said, all good theology should lead us to awe and wonder. And I think one of the tragic ways in which we've held uh, the Old Testament scriptures in the Protestant household, when we've been uh, seduced by uh, enlightenment thinking, the scientific way of reducing everything to make it reasonable, to make it measurable, to make it observable, is that our we walk away from scripture without that sense of awe and wonder at who God is and what he's doing. Because it just becomes like the Pharisees and the Sadducees about us just trying to break it down and understand it, whether it's to be good people or whether it's to follow the rules or whether it's to justify our position and the things that we want to believe. But awe and wonder don't uh, factor into the equation. And scripture in that way doesn't uh, transform us. You know, I'm always very fond of saying that, you know, we think because of the Enlightenment era, it's our job to interpret scripture. But in reality, it's scripture's job to interpret us because it enlivens our imagination. It breathes God's life into us. It wakes us up to revelations of who he really is. And our response to that should be on wonder. So this series, what I want us to do is to reclaim that sense of awe and wonder that comes from the beauty of the story of God that finds its beginning and its end in Jesus. Can we see how all of this connects? It all belongs. That the story of God is far bigger than we've been led to believe. Because to be a Christian is not to divorce ourselves from the Old Testament for the sake of the new, but it's to embrace the entire story and to relentlessly seek Jesus in the midst of it. And if we allow it, scripture will never, never fail us in this endeavor. So I wanna read the first few verses of Hebrews chapter one one more time, just to kind of wrap up uh, the intro to the series. After God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets, in these last days, he has spoken to us in a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the world. The son is the radiance of his glory and the representation of his essence. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. And so when he had accomplished cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thus, he became so far better than the angels as he has inherited a name superior to theirs. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Brothers and sisters, my hope for you in this season is that you are enraptured by the discovery of Christ in these ancient, ancient stories, that you see the beauty of the plan that God has had all along, and that it brings you to a sense of awe and wonder at Jesus on his throne. May he renew our vision for the Old Testament scriptures in a way that it leads us closer to him. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.